Hello and welcome to the Children's Literature Research Podcast. My name is Mark. I'm a PhD student at the National Centre for Research in Children's Literature at the University of Roehampton. And today I'm chatting with Perry Nodelman, a professor emeritus at the University of Winnipeg, author of the seminal work of Picture Book Studies, Words About Pictures, as well as a host of other books and innumerable essays about a whole range of topics within the field of children's literature research. Thank you for joining us, Perry. You're welcome. I'd like to start off just talking, if we could, about um, what you're working on at the moment. I understand you have a, a project about picture books and art galleries. This is correct. Yeah, well, it's uh, started out as a very small project, then it seems to have turned into a massive one, as it turns mm-hmm. out. Uh, but basically, uh, about six years or seven years ago now, I started uh, being a volunteer guide at the art gallery in uh, Winnipeg, uh, mostly with uh, children on school tours. And I started to do that because uh, by this point, I'd been retired for you know, from my academic job for Oh, almost 10 years, I guess. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and and uh, <clears throat> I had quite enjoyed just sitting at my computer and doing stuff for the, <laughs> that period. And I realized I wasn't getting out enough. And it occurred to me that um, having written words about pictures, I'd had to find out quite a lot about theories of art and so on. And I thought, well, I can put that to use. So I called up the gallery uh, and uh, they decided to, they would allow me to <laughs> lead children around and look at art. Uh, and uh, so when I moved to Halifax a few years ago, uh, I immediately got in touch with the art gallery and they allowed me <laughs> to do it also. It sort of uh, revitalized my interest in, in images, just generally speaking, and so on. And somewhere along the way, I found this one picture book that quite fascinated me. Um, I think it's called Picturescape by a Canadian uh, author. Because what was happening in that book was that uh, a young boy goes to a, the art gallery and um, starts looking at pictures. They're all pictures by Canadian artists in this particular book. And given the status of Canadian art in Canada and outside of it, I didn't mm-hmm. recognize a lot of them. But uh, what happens is that he enters into, I guess he, you're supposed to think he's imagining entering into the actual landscape of the picture. Mm-hmm. And then he proceeds to move from picture to picture in the art gallery. Uh, so he's putting himself quite literally in the picture. Yeah. And I thought, oh, that's kind of ingenious. I like mm-hmm. that idea. And then I started looking around and lo and behold, I discovered this wasn't a very fresh idea. <laughs> uh, and by now, I think I must have about 30, 35 of these books about children who go to, well, actually more than that, who go to art galleries and find themselves either in the pictures with the people depicted in them or the people in the pictures have stepped out and they're going with them somewhere in the world outside the picture. Mm. Uh, and so it just became fascinated for uh, to begin with, with the idea that this very ingenious idea would be hit upon by so many different people, uh, suggested to me something really interesting about children's literature, that, you know, it seems to be the world of the human imagination is there before you forever when yeah. you think about children's books. And yet, there's really a surprisingly limited range of things that people usually do all of which I'm sure struck each of their individual inventors as a brilliant stroke of individual genius when they started until you start looking around and finding, you know, there's a whole body of whatever it happens to be. Among other things in this project, I've since then found, for instance, at least three books in which characters uh, end up in an art museum because they're looking for art, a person named Art. 
Right? Oh, really? <laughs> yes. <laughs> and when I first saw the first one, I thought, oh, that's kind of a clever idea. And then I found two more. <laughs> yeah. So you've got kind of layers of kind of interactivity there, I suppose, because you've got someone, an, a physical person reading, you know, reading the images mm. there. And then you've got the, mm. the, the character interacting mm. and reading those images within that. So you've got. Yeah. And that, yes, I think that does happen. And um, and then it, it turns in it, the reason this grew into a larger project is I realized one of the things that was intriguing me was how uh, many of these books actually are about well-known paintings. Somewhere along the way in my research, I found somebody, I can't remember whom off the top of my head, who suggested that in art education for young people, there was a, a, a canonical period of about 60 or 70 years in the history of art, uh, starting with Impressionists and moving up through the beginning years of the 20th century. And when I looked at picture books, that was pretty well confirmed. There's almost no art before, say, the 1850s or 60s. Um, it's mostly Impressionist. And then you get uh, the occasional, I guess, uh, more recent ones, and they tend to be the same small group of people. It's Picasso. Try to think. Uh, Frida Kahlo is another mm -hmm. one you get a lot. Uh, it's uh, uh, at least some reference to like kind of Jackson Pollock kind of paintings. Mm -hmm. And then that's it. <laughs> do you do you think this is a because of their sort of canonical status, or is this a perception that these are the type of images that will appeal to children? Yeah. And they're you know a lot of those are very visually striking. And well, I do think it's a, a, there's an, a, when you start looking at ways people talk about their books, you know the paratext kind of aspects of of these books. Uh, what you get is um, a lot of focus on the same kind of topics over and over again. One of them is that, among other things they're doing, is they're, they're introducing children to art history. Right? Mm -hmm. uh, so apparently these are people you ought to know. It's sort right. of like cultural equipment. Yeah. And uh, I've just recently been looking at a batch of um, the kind of cardboard books that are for very you know young babies and so <laughs> yeah, on. Yeah. Uh, and um there's this astonishing number of those that want to introduce children to uh, uh, Van Gogh, particularly, or Monet, yeah. or Matisse is another one that's very popular. Yeah. And uh, they're kind of intriguing to me because they take existing paintings and then sort of form them into a little bit of a narrative. Mm -hmm. uh, and I was trying to get my mind around that as an idea of how to make a picture book. Mm -hmm. Usually, you know, picture books start with a text and the illustrator illustrates what the words said when he or she looked at them in the first yeah. place. But here we are starting with illustrations and saying, what kind of a story can I make out of this? Mm. Uh, I have to organize them into some kind of sequence. Often it's just like a day in the garden or something like that. Yeah. But, so that's another weird aspect of it that you suddenly realize the very major distinction between paintings and illustration. Mm. Uh, the paintings are not part of a narrative. <laughs> Yeah, but there are lots of similarities mm. in you know in composition, and you have obviously oh, yeah. the, the the composition of, of the artwork. Mm. But then you have all of those physical things that when you're mm -hmm. designing a book and illustrating a book, you have to incorporate those. So again, yes, it, yeah, and you know, as I said, when I began this, it was because uh, I thought about well, what happened was back in the 1980s. I realized that when I started teaching uh, children's literature, uh, it was not something I chose myself to begin with. My mm. department chair came to me one day and said, "We have to teach a children's literature course. I think you're the person who should do it." <laughs> I was very insulted by that comment, but uh, being a you know a very serious uh, specialist in Victorian poetry. <laughs> mm. 
but I agreed to do it. And uh, it actually uh, woke up my academic instincts because I had spent, by that point, it was almost a decade out of finishing my PhD. I really hadn't done any academic work in that time. I had was just worn out. And when I started looking at children's books and then reading what people had to say about them, I said, here's something that needs to be discussed. Yeah. <laughs> so I felt quite comfortable doing that, except when it came to picture books, because I didn't know anything about pictures. Mm. And so I, I ended up writing my book, uh, Words About Pictures, because uh, I needed it. I needed to find out how pictures work so I can understand how picture books work. And uh, the only obvious thing to do is go and see what I could find in the library that would help to explain pictures to me. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and as I said, that was the kind of the research that led me to becoming a guide again at the other end of my career. Yeah. So that's a nice, a nice book ending of. Yes. <laughs> so you, you kind of mentioned that you, so you mm. didn't start off as a, as a, children's literature research no. nowadays it's it's not uncommon for people to be able to spend their whole academic life you know you can study children's literature at yes the graduate mm-hmm. and postgraduate but but you didn't did you no uh i uh went to graduate school at the at the very end of the kind of new criticism period mm-hmm. which meant that in fact i had a, a very peculiar kind of way of choosing what I was going to be a specialist in, let's say. Mm -hmm. I decided I I wanted to write something really important, and all of the major canonical writers had already been nicely taken by other scholars. (laughs) So I decided I, I would choose Tennyson, not realizing it would mean that, in fact, I was then defined as a Victorian scholar. Mm-hmm. And I wasn't much interested in most Victorian <laughs> literature. So I wasn't, one, maybe one of the reasons I was happy when the children's literature thing came along yeah. is I didn't have to do that anymore. <laughs> but yeah, there was no, when I went into children's literature, there was a vast body of writing about children's literature by either uh, people in information science, library kind of oriented mm-hmm. people, or education people. I was a scholar in an English department. I knew nothing about librarianship, and I knew nothing about uh, how you were supposed to teach children. And I found it, what they had to say about children's literature, outrageous in terms of what assumptions they were making about literature and why anybody should read it, Mm -hmm. Uh, which is what began me wanting to do some writing about things you know, and explaining to all of those you know, people who didn't know how to read literature, what, how they should be thinking about children's literature. <laughs> uh, so, but I very quickly discovered that there was very little of interest to me in the world of, uh, like, say, children's literature scholarship as done you know, by those people. The one thing I did discover was the American Children's Literature Association, where among a lot of uh, librarians and educators, there were a surprising number of literature scholars. Uh, we kind of found each other and and we felt we were inventing children's literature scholarship. Well, in many ways you were. <laughs> uh, and I think it's true. I think in many ways we were because um, this was not a way of thinking about children. They, they, somehow literary scholars had just decided children's literature was beneath them or the other people were dealing with it or it was an educational matter or whatever. Yeah. But uh, there wasn't uh, much happening uh, that would interest people. Now, I said, you know, end of new criticism. Uh, this long before the whole idea of cultural studies came along in the academic world. So the idea that something like a text written for children could be of academic interest was you know, sort of like assuming that a TV show could be of interest yeah. or you know, or fan fiction or something like yeah. that. 
And so we were sort of a little bit ahead of the curve. <laughs> but it is amazing to think that it is now mm-hmm. a perfectly legitimate mm-hmm. and an acceptable you know, thing to study and all of those things and, mm-hmm. and TV shows and, and yeah. any sort of media and culture. Yeah, well, it tells you my feelings about it then and I get to some extent still now where the, what was interesting about that was how literary studies did very clearly define itself as a kind of ivory tower pursuit. Like if it had any actual relevance to the real life human beings lived, then there was something suspicious about it. (laughs) (laughs) And I, one of of the reasons I wanted to write about children's literature is there was a reason to do it. Mm. You know, like uh, scholarship at that point was primarily uh, reading uh, a text, preferably one by somebody sort of canonical and figuring out an ingenious interpretation of it no one had ever thought of before. And, and then you could get a publication <laughs> uh, where the average uh, readership would be, I read at one point, something like four people over a 20-year period after publication. <laughs> yep. <laughs> yeah. One of the senses I got from from looking at some of your work is is that it, a lot of it was, this is just what's interesting me at the moment. It, obviously, there yes. oh, yes, picture absolutely. books has been your big focus, mm. but uh, you haven't just written about picture books. You, it's been no, and I, you know, I, mean, I never thought of myself as focused on picture books, particularly. I had a range of things that interested me, obviously. But um, the world decided I was interested in picture <laughs> books, and so I keep getting asked to talk about them. Yeah. <laughs> and I finally gave in to that and said, okay, so I'll, I'll do a whole I mean, it, it's a good thing mm. to talk about. Picture books are... Uh... Oh, yeah, I love talking about picture books, but uh, it, 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 you get... I mean, it's sort of like the, the academic world, generally speaking. You, you know, a niche gets established, and that's what everyone should be, you know, relating to. Or uh, in an individual career, you know, you're the person who does so-and-so. We can't have you talk about uh, fairy tales or whatever. Yeah. And then and- I have to keep thinking of ingenious ways to, to <laughs> do picture books that will allow me to talk about other things. Like, I yeah. just I just finished a, a, a chapter for a, a book that I think is coming out next year about um, uh, depictions of gender and so on. So I wrote a piece about uh, boys, or the uh, picture books about boys wearing dresses. I, I started looking at because I was just surprised again at how many I found, kind of, mm-hmm. like, within the last 10 years, maybe uh, nine, 10 different books. Mm-hmm. About a boy who likes to wear dresses, and then they have to, you know, sort it out with their friends and their family, and so on. And what was your and, you mm-hmm. takeaway from those those books? What sort of well, what fascinated me was that again, all of the uh, the context for them that was being established for adult purchasers was all about how it related to issues like uh, being transgender. Mm-hmm. Uh, the books themselves, except for one, ex- I think one exception, which was about specifically uh, meant to be a a biography of a transgender child Mm -hmm. uh, who actually existed. (laughs) There is no mention of the word transgender in the text. There is no mention of anything other than these are imaginative children who, you know, like to dress up (laughs) and they should be free to be themselves (laughs) and so on. So there's a kind of pulling back from the specific issue and uh, turning it into like a question of everyone should be, you know, allowed to be themselves. (laughs) Mm. Uh, And I found that quite fascinating because um, one result of not mentioning the issue was that they have to uh, 
establish uh, themselves in terms of what turned out to be cliches of uh, feminine, uh, like what femininity consists of. And even in the case of the one autobiographical book, the uh, uh, the main character speaks to us about how she was always always knew that um, uh, she was a girl, and she could tell that because she was only interested in ballets and princesses and etc. <laughs> right. And so it had to play into the stereotype in order to make its point in a way. So I just found it fascinating how they, in order to support something, and in the context of children's books, you couldn't actually say what that thing was. Apparently, you ended up. Sort of trans, uh, sort of counterproductively is confirming traditional stereotypes. So, do you think that those, uh, mm. the the point of those books mm. was supposed to be? Uh, did, did they sort of fail as uh, in their purpose? Do you think then? Well, I would say they failed because um, they're not very specific about things. <laughs> mm. And yet, on the other hand, um, you know, there'll be back matter that refers you to various organizations, things like mm. that. Uh, so they assume they're being helpful, <laughs> yeah. but they're not. They don't want to name the subject. It's like mm. taboo, <laughs> yeah. uh, and because they don't want to name it, then I'm not sure you can actually deal with it. Like my response to that, I'm sure, if I was a child and I had that problem, would have been. Yeah, but I don't just like wearing dresses. I like to, you know, my issue is I know I'm in the wrong body <laughs> or something like that. And and do you why do you think it is that um that they don't sort of name it? Why don't they use the Oh, because I don't think I mean, because I think publishers uh, understand right. their market and libraries aren't going to buy it and people are yeah. going to, you know, be up in arms and their mother's going to come into the children's mm-hmm. section and say this book ought not be in the library and go yeah. to the newspaper and you know, <laughs> there's a there's safety in not naming what you're mm-hmm. talking about, and there's um, in a sense I, I I wouldn't be surprised if you came down to individuals. It's avoiding the issue, right? Yeah, you know. I, think, I mean, let's I think, just let's just say we like something yeah. to be imaginative. <laughs> yeah. That's much easier. Yeah. <laughs> but I think that um, mm. issue of of what publishers will mm-hmm. and, and the marketing departments mm-hmm. of publishers uh, will kind of permit, mm-hmm. I think, is something that. Uh, isn't necessarily looked at enough in in scholarship. Yeah, I agree. We, we tend to we tend mm. to have this thing of oh, why is you know why mm. is the author or illustrator doing this in the way that we mm. might do with Tennyson or mm-hmm. you know anyone else? But actually, yeah. with with um, and especially visual texts with the the kind of mm. overheads of production and and all of those things, um, I think the the marketing department and the publishers have a huge say in oh, the yes. text that we ultimately mm. receive. Yeah, well, I think there, there's not a, enough perception of the degree to which that just about any children's book specifically is is a collaboration. Mm-hmm. And the collaborators include people who don't write and don't illustrate yeah. <laughs> uh, and have other interests. In a way. One of the uh, things that happened to me as a result of becoming a children's literature scholar was that uh, along the way, in the, uh, let's see, when it would be in the 1980s, I had been doing a lot of academic writing and I had edited a journal and was involved in the organization aspects of the Children's Literature Association. And um, I decided that I really needed a rest. Mm-hmm. And I had a sabbatical opportunity come up. And I remember walking in the park and saying to my wife, you know, I'd like to have a sabbatical, but I won't really have a project. <laughs> we talked about it, and I realized I had started years earlier to to write a, a novel, a children's novel. So I thought, here's what I will do. I will 
tell the committee I'm going to spend my sabbatical year working on this novel. I'll right. try it for two or three weeks, realize there's no way I can do this. <laughs> <laughs> and then I can just rest for the rest right. of the year. And it turned out that it was fun to write the novel. And I had a kind of entry into some publishing houses because people knew my name as a scholar. So I sent uh, the book off. The people at the Groundwood in Toronto said, yeah, this, you know, lots of problems, but, you know, keep working on it. <laughs> and gave me editing suggestions and they eventually took the book very quickly. Uh, so I found myself in the world of children's publishing. And uh, among other things, I learned the, how very significant the whole publishing aspect was in terms of how books worked and you know what mm -hmm. what they were about and um, how they related to each other and so on uh, in ways i had never understood before that my big moment of insight was um uh, people at groundwood were you know all excited about my book and we were going to be you know it was going to be great and so on and then yeah. About two or three weeks before it was uh, to go to the printer, I got a phone call from the editor and said, we've been thinking about this and there's this thing. <laughs> and the thing was that my character had, I can't remember what word he said, but it was considered in inappropriate for right. a young child to say. Okay. It, it was even something like, you know, damn it or something like yeah. that. And they said, now we leave this up to you at this point. If you take that out, we think it will it will market to a younger audience where way more books are sold, uh, <laughs> or you can leave it in <laughs> and not sell so many copies uh, and not sell so many books. It's your choice, you know. Uh, you're the author. Uh, so I thought about it well and then said, well, you know, I'm leaving it in. <laughs> mm -hmm. And at that point, probably sent myself to a very short career <laughs> as a children's writer. <laughs> But I found that uh, really interesting that they well understood the financial implications of a word. Uh, so understanding that, understanding um, the significance of editors' choices, uh, and then you get into all these questions of like, um, what influence does the cover art have on who buys mm. it or might be interested in it? Did you get the right number of starred reviews from the major reviewing bodies? <laughs> um and then uh, I did publish a couple of books, uh, including a sequel to my first one. And then I had an idea for another one, and you know, about the same character. And um, by this point, I'd been told I needed to have uh, an agent. And my editor at Simon and Schuster uh, sent me to the person who had mentored him in children's publishing, uh, who had become an agent by that point. And so I, I got in touch with the agent and said, I got this idea. And I thought, oh, this would be great. I can, you know, this will all happen. He said, no, he's decided he won't take it because uh, this is 1989 or 90, something like mm -hmm. that. Uh, no, later than that, like in the late 90s. Uh, in any case, um, he his wisdom as a brilliant editor has decided that fantasy is not selling <laughs> anymore. Uh, so you can't have fantasy. He said, "Okay." So I wrote a you know a non a non fantasy book, which did okay about six months before Harry Potter happened. <laughs> <laughs> At which point I stopped trusting the wisdom yeah. of editors. But nevertheless, it, it was intriguing that in fact very little fantasy was being published in the United States, at least at that point, mm. because they had all agreed that no one would buy it. Yeah. That's the thing. And then, yeah, then Harry yeah. came along and everyone realized they were wrong. 
<laughs> or you know suddenly suddenly they were wrong i mean you know, yeah. maybe they were quite right to begin yeah. with Very <laughs> true. so, so did, did did those experiences um did they have an impact on on your scholarship in, in terms absolutely because the point was like i suddenly realized i have to take these things into account when i think about why things are the way they are like uh you know the fact that i can find so many books that about children going into art galleries and, in, mm. and going into the art or people coming out of the art suggests there's a kind of a, what is it uh, Bourdieu calls it a habitus mm. uh, you know that uh, that gives you success in a particular field and in the field of children's publishing it's very interesting to think about what will make an editor successful what will make a publisher mm. successful and therefore what they will encourage authors yeah. to do or discourage authors to do God, I was just going to say it uh, makes you wonder what are the kind of encounters with art in, in picture books is someone trying to write and, <laughs> yeah. and, and you've got editors saying, no, no one will buy this. Yeah. Well, it's hard to say. And in fact, if you get close to, you know, there's like a whole industry of people who will help you to become a writer. Mm. Uh, there is conferences and there is people who give editing advice and there is, you know, uh, organizations you can join and so on. So you get an insight into what they share with each other. Uh, and you realize why so many children's books are so much like each other, because mm. these are unpublished writers who are learning how to get published. Mm. And what they're telling each other to do is basically connected to that habitus of the publishing world, yeah. <laughs> in a way. Uh, they're being told not to be too imaginative, not to be too daring, uh, understand the limitations of a specific audience. You know, and a lot of that is useful advice. Like, you know, you mm. can't write something that is neither a picture book nor a, nor a children's novel. Yeah. And expect, because, you know, bookstores have nowhere to put it on their shelves. Yeah. So no one's going to buy it. <laughs> yeah. So therefore, no one's going to publish it. Yeah. <laughs> and you can't write a, you know, a, pic a picture book is 32 pages. Yeah. And if you if you try and do a 84 yeah. page, you know, yeah. picture book, then you're going to struggle. Yeah. Well, yeah. And again, a lot of that is the, to begin with economic. Mm-hmm. Right, like it has to be uh, whatever the number of pages. It has to be a number of pages that can be cut from a whole sheet, so you're yep. not throwing paper away in the process of producing it. Yeah, and that that single fact, when I kind of learned that, um, really did change mm -hmm. the way I I looked critically at picture books because mm -hmm. you do it, it means that the creative team, mm -hmm. not just the writer and the mm -hmm. illustrator, but the art department and everything. You know, they have this template of, well, it's got to be divisible by this. So this is, yes. you know, mm -hmm. it's not just someone sitting mm -hmm. down and saying, let me just make up this picture book from from nothing. It's I've got these limitations that I that I have to work in. Otherwise, no one's going to ever see this book. Right. And it does, I think, change the way you you look at those books then. Well, yeah, because it, I, I found myself thinking of a picture book as a, like a kind of sonnet in a way. You know, mm -hmm. it is a form which has very strong restrictions. It only becomes a picture book if you have this many pages, if you, <laughs> et cetera, et cetera. And mm -hmm. you could make a quite lengthy list of those things that people don't think about and just take it yeah. for granted. You know, and mm -hmm. although I think if you saw a book that didn't fit in, in all of that, then you'd say, what's going on here or yeah. something like that. Mm -hmm. My thanks to Professor Nodelman for joining me on the Children's Literature Research Podcast. We spoke for so long that it was impossible to fit everything into just one episode, so don't forget to subscribe to be notified about the next episode where you can hear more of our conversation. And thanks also to you for joining us. I hope you enjoyed the episode, 
and I look forward to spending time with you again. <laughs>